Hello. Alex Schmitter. It's Jeffrey Masters. Jeffrey Masters. Oh my gosh, it's so good to hear from you. Thank you. You are on LGBTQ&A. How are you? Oh my gosh. I, you know, I'm doing okay, all things considered. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I think okay is good enough for now. You know, I wanted to talk to you today because we're about to hear an interview with Sam Fader, the director of the new Netflix documentary Disclosure. And you are one of the associate producers on the movie. You're also the associate director of transgender representation at GLAAD. And maybe most importantly, you are my friend. And I've heard you talk about this movie for maybe like two years. So tell me, why has this movie meant so much to you? I think working at GLAAD and understanding the significance of representation having an ability to contextualize our history in terms of TV and film representation is crucial. For the majority of the public, everything people have come to know about this community has been informed by TV and film. And so if we have no historical context or lens to look through to understand how these images have contributed to our cultural understanding, then we don't fully understand the power of media and the power of storytelling. And being on Netflix, that's best case scenario, right? It doesn't get much better in terms of visibility, but I think what our film also proposes to say is that visibility is only a means to an end. It has to lead to material and real world cultural change. And so in that way, it is critical. And granted that in in different countries, there are different cultural contexts, different legal systems. But for the first time, in many cases, I think a lot of people are getting to hear from trans people ourselves about the media that we have grown up on in addition to the rest of the world. And, you know, one of those people we see a lot is Laverne Cox. And, you know, she she's a star. We see her on red carpets. And I think it's really easy for people who are not as familiar with the trans experience to see someone like her and not, not know that for someone in her identity group, like Black trans woman, that it can be a really dangerous world to live in. And in that sense, like, there's real urgency with this movie. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's also about the paradox of visibility. So the more that we are known, the more that we are seen, the more it's also likely that people may be enraged by our existence. And so we always have to sort of toe the line and, and understand that, again, visibility is not the end goal. Representation is not the end goal, but it helps us to get to a place of cultural understanding and acceptance so that people can live their lives as who they are safely. With the paradox of visibility, I think it's such like a nuanced conversation to talk about. But do you think that I'm wrong in, I don't want to just, I don't want to accept violence, obviously, for anybody in or out of our community. But do you think I'm wrong to just think that all of the issues that come with visibility, those are necessary hurdles that we have to deal with that comes with visibility and there, there's no way around that? I disagree in some ways because I think when visibility is tied to responsible, accurate, and authentic storytelling, then we can actually counter the cultural backlash that is often tied to stories about us that don't involve us. The disability community coined this phrase that I use all the time, there can be nothing about us without us. And historically, 
all the stories that have been told about transgender people have not actually involved us. And so I don't believe that it's pure in in black and white. That's such a good point. So you're saying, and, and rightfully so, that we are seeing issues come out of all this increased visibility because the representation has been poor. It's been bad. I, I mean, when you watch Disclosure, you will see a hundred plus years of what I would argue is misrepresentation. I really, now that I've started really thinking about and looking critically at this history, most of it has been misrepresentation and inaccurately reflecting who trans people are, who this community is, and also only focusing on the extremes of our experiences, whether it's trans people only dying and only being the victims of violence or only being on red carpets and only being celebrated to the extremes because there's a spectrum of experiences. And I think when we're, we talk about representation, we want a, the richness and the depth. And as Jen Richards said, what we need is more so that when those clumsy or tropish or stereotypical or cliched representations show up, they're not the only thing we have to rely on not only for the public to see and understand who we are, but for we ourselves as trans people to see and understand who we are. Right. And that is why I, I know so many trans men that talk about Boys Don't Cry and how like traumatic it was. And on itself, it was just a traumatic movie, but it was made, I think, even doubly more traumatic in our consciousness because it was one of the only movies in the mainstream to even have a trans man. Boys Don't Cry to me is very complicated personally because it was the first time I ever saw a trans man or knew that that identity existed. And it was both such a relief to know that I wasn't the only one who existed, but also such a terror in that that was the real life outcome of Brandon Tina for being who he was. I think for a lot of us trans men specifically and trans masculine people, it's the question of would we prefer representation that isn't perfect to representation that's non-existent at all? Because how are we supposed to see ourselves in the world if we have no indication that we even exist? And I know that like, given the nature of your work, you actually got to speak to Hilary Swank and have a conversation with her. Can I ask what that conversation was like for you? Yes. So I produced a film last year called Changing the Game, which is about three trans high school athletes. And we were screening the film at a film festival in Colorado. And we finished, we did a Q&A, we finished the film, we went out into the lobby, and my body went into complete shock when I saw this familiar face. I couldn't verbalize who I was seeing, but it was Hillary Swank and she came up and she thanked me for the film and said how much it moved her. And I shared with her that I wouldn't be who I am had I not seen her in her role as Brandon Tina. And we had this really emotional, beautiful moment and exchange and sort of uh, a full circle moment, if you will, of the person who played this character that, you know, while we, can de- while we can and should debate what casting looks like now, 20 years ago, it was very different. I know that I wouldn't exist as I am today. And knowing the immense importance of media had 
Hillary not played Brandon in such a compassionate way that understood who he was fundamentally. And so we shared a really beautiful exchange that I will never forget. It it was a sign to me that I was on the right track and doing the kind of work that I can be proud of. That's amazing. I also think that's an amazing lead into the interview. Should we get to Sam? I think that would be an amazing idea. Sam's incredible. Let's do it. Okay, so this is Sam Fader. He is the director of the crucial new documentary now on Netflix called Disclosure. Here it is. Sam, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. You know, before I watched the movie, one of the things I was wondering was how far back could trans people on screen possibly go? And I was pretty shocked to see that they go back as far as the beginning of Hollywood, the earliest films. Did you know that going into this? I knew there were deep roots to the images we were seeing, the images I had grown up with. And so it was very validating, actually, to see how far back it went and to know that we've been a site of fascination for storytelling. The earliest date that I think I saw was 1914. That was the Florida enchantment. In that movie, you know, a woman takes a tonic, it turns her into a man. That's not somebody that we would consider a trans character. It's not somebody like grappling with their gender. So I wonder for you, like, what definitions or guidelines did you make for yourself behind the scenes to decide what films to include? Yeah, the way, the, the way I defined trans for this film was a character that was transgressing gender expectations. In a lot of cases, if you saw someone that you might think, oh, that's a crossdresser or that's a drag queen, if within the story they were playing someone of the opposite gender, opposite, you know, for lack of a better word, um, then I found that to be, you know, a character that is transgressing gender expectations, you know, whether it's whether the audience is in on it or not, you know, it's all those things are, are like, to be explored. And for these early films, there's not just like a list on Wikipedia. Like, how did you find so many different examples? <laughs> <laughs> my God, I wish there were a list. The two of the films that really changed my life, two documentaries that changed my life, were The Cellulite Closet Ethnic Notions. Cellulite Closet is about gay and lesbian representation in film, and Ethnic Notions is about Black people's representation in film in Hollywood. And th- both of those are based on books. So when I decided to make this film, I thought there'd be a book. And so I looked and looked and looked and there was nothing. I took a took a pause and t- tried to understand how I was going to tell a story. I, documenting a history is so ethically precarious. And so I, I did not want to do this on my own. I did not want to decide which films and television shows to tell, which history to highlight. So the first thing I did was interview 70 other trans people who've worked on one side of the camera or the other and ask people to share their memories of what they've seen over their lifetime and what they've heard about. And from those interviews, I was able to create a database from which the primary document of the film is based on. Oh, so it was crowdsourced in a way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, deeply crowdsourced. Because I think, like, thinking about this film, it's a, it's a massive undertaking to, like, document the entirety of trans lives on screen. I mean, I, I, I think at the end we have around 400 film titles and 600 television titles. So there's so much missing. And there's so many voices that need to be included in the story. And I just, I can't wait to see, you know, what the next person does with this topic. And we hear from so many different trans people, as you said. 
One of the things that really stuck with me, I think, was Jen Richards, that she identifies the central tension, I think, which is that she said that seeing trans people on screen, it forced her to internalize monstrous depictions of trans people. But at the same time, it showed her that being trans was possible. You know, it's 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 something I've wrestled with my entire career of, you know, is representation necessary at any cost? You know, is is horrible representation better than no representation? And I think there's no answer. And I think I love in disclosure that you hear such conflicting responses to that. And, you know, we don't have a choice like these things either do exist or they don't. And so I think it's really interesting to wrestle with the complexity and contradiction of that reality. And what about you? When was the first time that you saw a, like a trans person on screen that had an impact on you? I mean, my earliest memories are certainly talk shows um, and Crying Game and Boys Don't Cry. I mean, those are really my three touchstones. They all had the same effect of making me completely disidentify with trans people. And when did that change? When I met trans people in real life. I mean, I specifically remember the moment I met a trans man for the first time and truly didn't know that was a possibility until I met someone when I was in my 20s. Um, I believe it was actually around Pride and going. I was going to some party in Manhattan and I was waiting at the elevator and this guy approached some friends I was with and I was like, who's that and why is he, you know, with our group? And I very quickly realized he was a trans guy and it just, it, blew my mind and then the whole world opened up to me in a different way. Oh, because we talk all the time about how most people will come into contact with a trans person on TV or film before in real life. And I think like the obvious part of that is too that that includes trans people, right? Trans people will often come in contact with a trans person on screen first. And one of the things that I think we see repeated in all these representations are like just the same cliches, the same tropes. You go through a sequence of you know, men learning that a girl at the bar is trans and then throwing up. Like, I know this is not the point, but there's like a, there's a, there's a laziness to that writing and storytelling that kind of surprises me. For example, like we're seeing more and more pansexual characters on screen than ever before. And I think every single TV writer thinks they invented, oh, are you into pans? (laughs) And I can't figure out why everybody wants to keep repeating the same like (laughs) punchlines. I I mean, I think... I, I tend to agree with you. Um, I'm sure there's a, a more eloquent way of saying lazy, but that's usually my go-to is like the masses are lazy. And unless you have a stake in the game, unless you have something on the line, why why not? Why not just be lazy when you're trying to tell a story? Like, you know, something gets laughs, you know, something gets attention. You just resort to it unless you feel that you have something on the line. And that's why it's so important for people to be telling their own stories, right? That people, when you have a stake in it, it's going to be a a completely different outcome. And that is the only reason why in the last six to seven years, representation has changed, right? Because we finally have trans people telling these stories. Yes, yes, yes. We have trans people telling these stories. We have more of a public conversation, so there's more to be accountable to. Not enough trans people are telling the stories, you know? And often you hear from studios that they just can't find the right person they just there are no people who do this and you know you know we made a indie doc um that is you now we're grateful to have a platform on netflix that we have now but up until now we've 
you know, been fundraising all of our own, all on our own. And we still managed to prioritize hiring trans crew. And when we couldn't hire a trans person, we mentored a trans person on set and everyone we interviewed was trans. So if a small indie doc can do that, the projects that are backed by studios have no excuse. I think that's such like a powerful thing to state too, that if there wasn't a trans person for the role that you mentored a trans person. To me, it was a no brainer. Like if, okay, if there's not the trans person who can do it, I want to make sure next time there is. I mean, and also I was miserable on sets whenever I tried to be on a set, you know, and not only because of the transphobia, but you know, I hate to say it, but the most sets are deeply misogynistic and homophobic and racist and classist and very uncomfortable if you want to make it's very uncomfortable to be on other sets where your values are not centered. So it was deeply important to me, again, telling a history to walk the walk. You know, and if I want things to look different, I needed to do things differently as well. And I think like the title itself is such like a powerful concept, you know, disclosing one's gender, you know, not revealing like a massive secret. Tell me about like landing on that title and coming up with it. That's so funny. You know, I've never been one to come up with my titles, both the titles of my previous films, other people suggested and and I went with. And this actually was from the beginning. You know, when I started this project with two of my friends in Brooklyn, we were like, okay, this is this is a good, you know, working title. And I really thought it was going to change over time. But disclosure is such, it's such a point of contention that I feel most trans people have had to wrestle with. And, you know, there's just unended expectation that trans people owe something to the people they meet, that we owe a disclosure, we owe an explanation for who we are, that we're not just who we show up as. And that's so deeply problematic. And everything, every single clip in that film goes back to saying we are not who we say we are, right? That we are not real, that we can't possibly be real, that transness doesn't exist. And that's what disclosure, when you're asking someone to disclose, you're telling them they're not who they say they are. And when you're seeing people on screen where it is treated like this massive secret, like a lot of the connotation is you can't trust a person who has transitioned. Yeah, that is, you're inherently a liar. You're, you're inherently deceptive and deceitful if this is part of your story. And I think too, like there was such power in seeing all of this in one film, right? Because you see like this, the scale of it. I was really taken aback at how, at how cruel a lot of the representation was hmm. for like popular movies like Ace Ventura. It, it, it struck me as like, oh, I cannot believe how fast we've changed a society where like that was getting massive punchlines. And now we look back and it, it's not just a bad joke. It, it's just cruel. Yes. And there's still a lot of <laughs> film and television that does this. You know, this is not ancient history by any means. You know, on one hand, people know exactly what they're doing and they don't care. They they think it's funny and, you know, that is the goal and they know they will get laughs. And some people don't know what they don't know. Um, I found it fascinating. I just read, uh, well, not just, a few months ago, Jim Carrey did an interview and he talked about how, of course, the film would be done differently if it was done now, right? Ace Ventura would definitely be done differently. However, he always felt kind of that people missed the point that he was playing you know, a caricature of a homophobic person, that it was so over the top, he was making fun of homophobic people. And he said, I mean, the whole point of my plunging my mouth 
uh, with the toilet plunger was because I kissed a guy. It's like, wow, you didn't even realize that this character was a trans woman, right? <laughs> like, like, yes, you know, Zeke in the film talks about how it's, you know, deeply transphobic and can be seen as deeply homophobic, but Jim Carrey isn't even acknowledging <laughs> that that person was a trans woman. And so it's like, wow, you don't even, you don't even know what you don't know. Like, so where do you go? Where do you start? That is really interesting. I keep talking about the things in the film that surprised me, but for you, like you went into this with a certain set of assumptions, I assume. What surprised you in the process of making it? When you see it all in one place, so many things happen. You, you, you realize how ridiculous it is and you just, it, you're realizing how ridiculous it is and you're seeing it all in one context and it's held in this history by these brilliant, beautiful trans people. And somehow you're, you can start to move past it right? Because then you can start to have a distance from it. That, that was surprising and exciting. I also found it really interesting looking at the history when I really went, because I, I love history and I'm a big nerd. And, you know, there's a story that Susan Stryker shares in the beginning of the film of how this film, Judith of Bethulia, uh, has a character that is credited as a eunuch, like in the credits of the film. So there's this cut character in this film, a cut character. And this cut body is in a scene where ostensibly the first film cut was made. And so that centering of transness in film history, I thought was, it, it changed the way I felt about being trans, about being in the world, about being, about history. And that was an incredible, it was an incredible revelation. And I love that example too, because every film class probably talks about this the character is beheading somebody and they, they cut away from it. And so they learn about that. That's a possibility on screen. But I, I'm assuming, making the assumption that no film professor ever talks about like the gender on screen. And it's just like another example of how like we are present, but not talked about. We're erased from history books, even though we're in the history books. Right. We're there uh, and it's not acknowledged because it's not centered. No, you're not looking for it. Um, that's why Susan is is so crucial to our history. And likewise, you know, Yancey, comes in and says, okay, if we're going to be talking about this film, Judith Bethulia, which was made by D.W. Griffith, you know, why is why do we so rarely acknowledge the racism that D.W. Griffith brought onto the screen? You know, so not only do we ignore the racism, we're also ignoring, you know, the, the fact that he could turn a trans person into a joke. And Yancey says so beautifully that if he had gone to film school and they had shown Birth of a Nation without the context he, that would have been it for him for film school. He would have walked away. And again, it just goes back to if you don't have a stake in these things, whether it's the telling or the teaching or the sharing of these stories, like so much is lost. And I appreciate that the film did not shy away from talking about depictions of different races. I think it was Laverne Cox that made the point that Black men on screen are threatening and they're aggressive. And putting a Black man in a dress makes them less threatening. And you go through all of our favorite Black comedians who have been forced to play roles where they have to put on a dress to make them more palatable to audiences. Yeah, it's a difficult, it was a, it's a difficult argument and to, to present in a, in a concise way. What was difficult about making that point in the movie? Well, the, the way Laverne is presenting it is she is saying that she thinks a lot of the way that people have looked at her identity is based on the way that cis black comedians have have had this rite of passage where they have to put on a dress in order to quell the anxieties of white audiences. You know, this is a very layered 
conversation and it's vital and it's crucial. And the problem, I mean, one of the biggest problems with media is, is this, is how it simplifies everything. The beauty of a documentary is that you get to explore these nuanced ideas and you get to do a deep dive. And so Laverne is saying that we're laughing at male comedians in dresses. Yeah, there's a conflation between her identity and this history of black male comedians having to be palatable to white audiences and and how and then also the deep history of black men being castrated, right? And that she thinks all of this is there's a relationship between that history, that very real deep history, and the way that people often see her experience. You know, I, I find it so compelling, just the history of gender transgression on screen. You know, the earliest Hollywood movies were like grappling with these issues. And I just want to ask like the broad question, like what do you think that tells us about like people in ourselves, like on the whole, this fascination that we have? <laughs> I mean, I think, I mean, we know that whether we've been trained or this is like a, a evolutionary advantage, but you know, when, when we look at people on the street, you know, we're, we're sussing them out. We're trying to put them in order. We're constantly putting people in order. And a big, a very comfortable distinction is the binary, right? That's something we've been taught to understand and to give us comfort. When that is pushed back against, people feel a great dissonance. To simplify it, it gives people comfort. I don't, I'm not really sure I'm not sure I have a bite-sized answer to that question. You know, I, I just... I don't know there is, like, a right or wrong answer. Yeah. I, I think, like, a pattern in all of your work, obviously, is, like, the history. I was so happy to see that there was a Kate Borenstein documentary, and then to see that, like, you were the director of it. <laughs> Thank you. Again, you were saying, like, we need more people who are trans, like, behind the scenes, behind being creators. Kate is such a significant person that if it wasn't for this, like, director who's trans, like, wanting to make a documentary, like, that wouldn't exist. I think, like, that kills me. You know, th there were never people who wanted to make films on Kate. They just never finished them. <laughs> so they, there are people that were not trans that tried. Why does that kill you? Because I wonder how many other figures like Kate we can't name because their work isn't documented. Absolutely. Yes, there's so, so many that were, and that, yeah, history is that, you know, people like, you know, academics and historians and inside and outside of the institution are covering in real time. And, you know, we'll, we'll see more and more, which I'm really excited about. Yeah. I love that. Thank you for talking to us. I think this was really fantastic. And I'm so excited for people to see the documentary. Thank you. It's great to finally meet you. And that was Sam Fader, the director of Disclosure, now streaming on Netflix. We also heard from Alex Schmitter before that. He's an associate producer on the doc and also runs all their social media accounts. So go say hi to him on Twitter. He's on there at Disclosure underscore doc. And if you haven't yet, please subscribe to this podcast and leave a comment on iTunes. Doing things like that, also spreading the word on social media, those are all amazing ways to help our show grow and continue. So thank you so much for that. This podcast is brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. Come check out all of our amazing work at advocate.com and glad.org. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I'll see you next week. Bye.